Hooray, hurrah. Once again, the smartest man in the world, Proofcast, takes to the ether, cats and kittens. That is the jazzy sound of Michel Legrand, who's swirling in the stars with a heart playing behind him. Um, the Jitterbug Wallace is the name of this band, uh, track, and it was recorded in 1958 in New York. Herbie Mann on flute, Betty Glamon on harp, Barry Galwith on guitar, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Phil Woods, Eddie Costa, Bill Evans, Kenny Dennis. Oh my God. Uh, it's just sensational. Michelle Legrand did a thousand soundtracks and a, a million types of records. Uh, obviously classical jazz, blues, and soundtracks. We're going to get to him in a minute. Uh, we're here to join hands and join hearts and seek some solace in each other's company in this burning heap that is uh, a world that's spinning around. Uh, there's so much good that's happened this week. Let's look past the bad, shall we? Um, first of all, the fact that Michelle Legrand was able to get Miles Davis to come and do this. Kind of makes life worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, here's Jennifer. Hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Hi, Jennifer. We're in the Porpoise of Fruititude somewhere in Lower California, broadcasting from our pirate radio station. We're sitting on two wooden milk crates right now, surrounded by nothing but broken bottles and dusty glass and spider webs all around us. If I could just set the atmosphere for you now. It's a very uh, uh, jazzy atmosphere. There's um, joints burning in ashtrays. There's... Uh, um, uh, pork rinds scattered everywhere Pigs knuckles, beer bottles Dim light Oh, dim light, I can barely see Mind you, I can't see anyway I haven't had I don't have my new prescription yet I, I had my left eye done for cataracts On December 10th And my right eye on December 17th And I haven't been able to see a bloody thing since So I've been walking around it Makes things exciting It really does Jennifer will go Will you shut up? Because I'm like There's a car coming And she's like It's five miles away um, it was worse before, but it's, it, it's, I'm getting my new prescription hopefully tomorrow. So we're excited about that. We're recording this on Monday. I'm sorry that the podcast has not been coming out in a timely manner. Um, but I have two things to say about that. One, get off and two, my dick. So <laughs> we're recording this on Monday the 28th. It'll come out oh, probably tomorrow or the next day. We hips. And then we're going to try to record as, as undisciplined as we are next Sunday. So that it'll go back to our regular schedule program, which, as you know, is regularly scheduled. Um, uh, I've been on the road with Who's Live Anyway, and uh, we're a comedy outfit uh, that travels the United States, um, annoying people by doing impro. And, of course, as you know, um, impro, uh, possibly the funniest thing in the world. It is when we do it, at least. Uh, my favorite comment anyone ever said was, um, why not prepare something funny? <laughs> And uh, I think, uh, no, we're on the road now. We went out uh, two weeks ago with Ryan Stiles. Uh, you may remember him. He's the tall one. And then we're out with um, our David Foley, who's a tiny powerhouse. He doesn't meet the height requirement, but we love him anyway. We're in Spokane this Friday at the, um, oh, Thursday, rather, at the Fox Theater with our David Foley. And by the way, David is an excellent improviser. Very funny. He's quite a good writer, and he's really tiny, and he has an awesome 1950s beatnik haircut. And um, he wears a little red suit, and it's just a joy doing improv with him. I mean, I love Ryan Stiles like a brother, of course. Obviously, we've slept together for years. But uh, uh, David and, uh, is, uh, as I say, the shortest member that's ever played with the group. Um, we're all six feet or over, or just about six feet. What, how tall is Drew? Six one? Six. He's my height. I think six. Is Chip my height, or is he shorter than me? Charles, I mean. I, I really haven't kept tabs on this. But. Well, you know, you're going to have to measure us up against a wall with a yardstick <laughs> like my mom used to do. And the pencil against the wall. There was always that one doorway, the one door jam where your uh, height was measured. Um, in any case, Charles is playing with us. Drew's playing with us this year. 
And by Charles, I mean Chip. By Chip, I mean Charles Eston from TV's uh, Nashville. Uh, Drew Carey, who you know from The Price is Right, and Ryan Stiles, who you know from uh, uh, Two and a Half Men and his part as Rubric or whatever his name was. I'd never watched the show. Um, I'd rather pull my own eyeballs out and feed them to an otter. Uh, but I'm sure it's really funny and that Chuck Lorre is a very nice person to him, so good for him. Um, and then David Foley from Kids in the Hall and uh, like that. So we've expanded the group. There's lots of us in it now and it, it's just as good. So when I advertise it and I'll, tw- I'll tweet and I'll say Dave Foley's with us and someone will go, what happened to Ryan? It's like, R- R- Ryan's okay. Ryan's okay. Um, we're shooting Who's Line next month in February. Um, I am, my tape date's February 13th if you're buying your tickets. By the way, a warning if you come to see a live taping of Who's Line, is it anyway? Oh, I better turn that off. I have no idea what we've gone into here in the music. I'm not stopping it either. Oh, it's Michelle Legrand. And he's doing um, uh, uh, Umbrellas of Sherberg. Aw. It didn't help that, it didn't hurt that he spoke perfect English and that he was a genius. Those two things never hurt. I wish I spoke as good of English as Michelle Legrand. You're going to tell the Miles Davis story. Yeah, we're getting to that. I'm, okay. I'm riffing now. All right. Uh, you'll are, recognize, you, are you? Yeah, no, it's not funny, but the, 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 you'll recognize my riffing by the lack <laughs> of humor. As I said, why not prepare something funny? But I didn't. Um... And uh, people will write me in panic, but we're shooting Who's Line in February. If you're coming to a Who's Line taping, um, bring a lunch, bring some alcohol in a, in a flask, bring, uh, uh, you know, speed, whatever it requires, because the first hour and a half is hysterically funny. Our producer, Dan, comes out and gives this really weird speech that no one understands what he's talking about. <laughs> and then we come out and we play games furiously. It's, it'll be me, Aisha, Wayne, Colin, and Ryan. And on other nights, uh, Jeff Davis, on other nights, Charles, on other nights, Brad Sherwood, Heather Ann Campbell. Uh, Gary, uh, whoever he's got in there. And uh, uh, the first hour is furious. We get up, we play uh, weird newscasters, uh, 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 hats. Uh, what's the one where we put the hats on that one? Hats from a game or whatever it is. Then there's another one where they pull slips out of paper out of a hat and then we do suggestions and we usually kind of have homo erotic jokes during that one. Uh, first date, party quirks, all of your favorites. We play those boom, 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 bang, 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 bang. Then there's a break. We change tape. Everyone goes to the bathroom. And then starts um, the camera blocking kind of thing. So we get up and we sit down a thousand times. So that part of the show is not quite as hilariously funny as the first part of the show. So my uh, advice to you if you're coming to a live taping is cut out after uh, a week. I can't. Uh, as, the, as Groucho Marx once said, I'm stuck here. But you can go to the lobby until this blows over. Um, in any case, uh, Ryan's taping um, Who's Line? with Colin all month and Wayne and uh, Aisha and Laura and Linda, of course, the lovely Laura and the lovely Linda. And uh, I'll be there for my tape day on the 13th. It's our 250th year on the air. We started on the Dumont Network. Then we went to NBC (laughs) Red. Um, During World War II, we were part of a paper drive uh, and we helped sell war bonds with Martha Ray. Uh, You may remember us from the Hollywood Canteen segment with the Ritz Brothers. Uh, We did a lot of work there. During Korea, uh, Martin and Lewis and I, we were in Yerkoost at, at a Marine base there. Uh, during Vietnam, uh, out on the road with um, uh, Bob Hope and uh, Pamela Tiffin uh, and uh, 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 Raquel Welsh. We were entertaining the troops, uh, whatnot. And then uh, during the Gulf War, uh, we went out with um, uh, Yakov Smirnov and Gallagher. And uh, so we've been around a while. And we're in our 57th great year, the Antique Roadshow, or as I like to call us now, the Chevy Alcoholics. And so uh, we'll be at the Spokane Theater. We'll be at the Fox Theater in Spokane. She don't lie, she don't lie, she don't lie. Spokane. Um, Thursday, January 31st, February 1st, Boise State University, the Jim Morrison Center for the Performing Arts. That's with Dave <laughs> Foley. 
That's right. Riders on the storm. And then um, halfway through the show, I drop my leather trousers and take out the little poop dog. And everyone's <laughs> going to have a great time at that show. Mother, I want to... Um then February 2nd, Groundhog Day will be in Reno, Nevada. February 2nd, Groundhog Day will be in Reno, Nevada at the Pioneer, the Pioneer Center for the Performing Arts. This is where the Donner Party consumed one another because the laughter was so sparse and sporadic on the way down the trail. We forced the Chinese to build a railroad through the Cascade Mountains at the cost of many lives, but we gave them opium at the end of the day and then chased them around San Francisco and harassed them. This is white people history. Hi, I'm the Pioneer Center for the Performing Arts. The Comstock Load was one of the richest in Nevada history, and it allowed white people to come here and form a place called Virginia City, which is still... What's the name of the capital? Carson City. It's been a shithole since the 19th century, and it carries on being a shithole. Now, remember, uh, Mark Twain, when he first uh, came to the West, during the Civil War, Mark Twain did not participate in the Civil War, even though he was from um, uh, the bloody border state of Missouri. And, of course, he took his name from um, a sounding that the riverboat captains made. Um, they'd say half twain, this twain, mark twain, meaning they dropped the rope in the water because it was a constant struggle to keep riverboats afloat and not running aground in the mud of the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. Um, he was a young reporter when he came out. And he got a gig in the Nevada paper and uh, was a bit of a scourge up there. Um, really took it to the locals, um, wrote some things that were uh, pissed everyone off and then would sally into San Francisco from time to time to drink. And uh, live it up at the hotels. And he wrote his mother about it constantly and his sister back in Missouri. And that's when he met Bret Hart, the writer. And uh, um, a really beautiful book that our, our, our good friend Lewis gave me about the Bohemians of San Francisco. Ina Coolbrith, um, John Star King, who was, um, there's a big street in San Francisco named Star King that no one understands why it's called Star King because it's S-T-A-R-R mm-hmm. space K-I-N-G. He was an itinerant minister who um, was a real mentor to writers in San Francisco in this period of um, California history, the 1840s, 1850s, and was a giant um, figure uh, when San Francisco burned to the ground a lot and was made of wood. He was also a staunch unionist. San Francisco and California in general tended to come down on the union side of the word and be Mm anti-slavery. Even though Mark Twain was from a place, and if you read Mark Twain's books, you'll know that he was fully acquainted with slavery, with runaway slaves, and deals with them quite extensively in his children's books. Um, But he lived in Virginia City. And uh, we're going up to Reno, uh, which is high up in the mountains there. Is there a point to all of this? Yeah. Um, Back the the hell up. Mark Twain said... (laughs) He gathered his reflections and he began to free his mind. Um, What you need to know about him is that he was contentious from the very start and that he didn't really have a jump until he went to Calaveras County and he wrote that um, frog story. And then that story went national. It was real difficult in the 1840s and 50s for West Coast writers to get published by New York publishers. And publishing was still very much centered in New York, of course, because basically they thought... There were still um, Native Americans all across the landscape. This is 25 years before Custer's last stand. So um, there was no Intercontinental Railroad. You took the railroad up to a certain point, uh, well, maybe the Cumberland Gap or so, and then it was coaches and carriages and jostling the whole way. Very uncomfortable indeed. And Los Angeles was just a dinky little... Was anything yeah. here? 
Barely. I mean, Olivera Street, uh, there was some vineyards. Obviously, the Spanish had been here most and were of, there. Most of Beverly Hills was owned by, it was a ranch owned by um, a Mexican woman. And, and even in the 1840s. Sing, single mom. Way to that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, L.A. didn't get whiteicized until the later half of the 19th century. Mm. Well, all the streets here, La Cienega means the swamp. Uh, Charming. Was uh, Well, and where I grew up in San Carlos, St. Charles, the whitest place on earth. Um, the main drag was called Alameda de las Pulgas, the Avenue of the Fleas. <laughs> and the other main drag was El Camino Real, the Royal Road. Um, so no white people named this. Uh, uh, um, Latins, or rather um, Hispanic people, in other words, people who spoke Spanish. Um, and, uh, you know, Delphi Indians... <clears throat> They made Junipero Serra a saint years ago, or they were pushing for that, and uh, there was a lot of... Um, no, he has been made a saint. Well, there was a lot of pushback by uh, uh, Native yeah. Americans in this yeah. country, because even though by 18th century standards, his attitude was considered somewhat benign, he enslaved them. Um, they destroyed their culture. They oh, were forced I think to they knew what they were doing. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a gigantic statue of him on the way to San Francisco from my town, San Carlos, as you drive up the 280 freeway, right about San Bruno, and it got put up in the 70s, and it's this enormous cautionary mm-hmm. statue of Junipero Serra. He's sort of holding his finger out, pointing toward the Pacific Ocean. It's squat and cubist and, and yeah. sort of alarming. Yeah, it's brutalist. It's not, it, it's not romantic. <laughs> It's a really weird depiction of him, but maybe more accurate than it's some. giant. Well, do you remember when we drove across the south of Spain and everywhere we went, it was Cervantes was imprisoned here and or um, Junipero Serra had been there because he didn't or, he come from... Or Lorca was assassinated here. Right. He was assassinated in Granada, was it? Yes. We went to the hotel where he performed uh, and did his poetry and whatnot. Um, wasn't Junipero Serra from uh, uh, Andalusia? Yes. Um a Franciscan, as I recall. And didn't he walk into California? Yeah. Um, he's, in a, you know, California history is pretty um, much like the rest of the United States, um, bathed in racism and blood and torn with the conflict of the Spanish taking the land from the Indians and then white people taking the land from the Spanish. And the first governor of California was a Spaniard, mm-hmm. not, a, mm-hmm. not a white person from England. Um, that didn't happen until way later in the game. Um, California became a state... What, about 1840-something? It's fascinating and also shocking to go to the missions. And how many missions are left? All, 20, all of them, yeah. 20-something, all more of them. than... Um, Mission Santa Barbara, it's beautiful, and it's it's been uh, well taken care of. And from there, the, the Indians tried to uh, mount an insurrection. Mm-hmm. And they uh, were in, in contact with a Russian fort, Oh, absolutely. To try to help them. The Russians still were in California uh, at that point. Um, there's a place up, uh, up the north coast of California, not that far away from San Francisco, maybe three or four hours, called Fort Ross, where there's still a wooden fort standing that the Russians built. What were the Russians doing here? Well, uh, obviously, uh, this was before the gold rush. The pelt trade mm. was um, of amazingly significant importance. And the otters, the giant California sea otters that are six feet long, um, were in preponderance, like the bison of, of yore. And We've the Russians, only ever got to see one. Well, there wasn't that many left. Well, I mean, the one we saw was in Elk, was it? Outside of Elk? Yeah. Which wasn't always called Elk. It had a different name before. It was Fort something or Russian something. I was urinating 
We were down on the beach. Corner. Jennifer and I were on the and beach. And it came up right next to me, and it was so large. Yeah. I was I was a little uh, a little scared, but it looked at me, and it was just like, hmm. Yeah. You know, whatever. And then jumped into the ocean. And swam away. Um, I heard a shriek, uh, <laughs> and I ran around the corner. And well, it was like a foot away from me. I was going to say, and Jennifer and was... it was about six feet long. Yeah, Jennifer was standing head tete-a-tete yeah. with a uh, like, podded... Uh, yeah, with a six-foot-long sea otter. And by the way, if you remember at the time, they said the furthest north they'd seen one was Bolinas, and we were all the way in Mendocino. Mm-hmm. So that they were wrong. Otters were ranging way up the coast. They made a comeback. I mean, I'm not saying they're flourishing, but... You know, usually you'd have to go to like the Monterey Bay Museum to see them um, because they're quite large. These are not river otters. These aren't your, this isn't your grandma's river otter. This isn't the Spoon River Anthology otter. They're still awfully cute. They're they're wildly cute. I mean, they're giant carnivores and they do hunt fish and other animals. And they have piercing teeth and they can swim like the very devil. This one was an ocean-going otter that had come ashore basically to see Jennifer, I guess, at that point. (laughs) We were just having a chat. Because it looked at us. Looked at her and then trotted back into the sea and swam away. And it, we didn't get a picture of it because there was no time to get a beat on it. I don't, I don't know if we had phones then. Yeah, no. And it was, oh my God, it was six feet I, long. I didn't really want to take my eyes off it. No, but, no, know. no. It was six feet long. It was yeah, giant. Yeah. We've seen it up there in Mendo, um, sea lion, that's giant. A, that's a lot of otter. Remember uh, um, going to the lighthouse? There's those enormous um, sea lions basking down. Yeah, and I love I love that there's a warning that says, you know, don't don't mess with them. They they get a little angry. Yeah. I want to get near a two ton, fifteen foot long bull sea lion during mating season is what I want to do because I want to be assaulted Kavanaugh style by a fucking sea lion and then crushed to death. And they have those weird sacks on their noses yes. that they float up and they go like that. And mostly they lay the there. Noises. Let's be honest. Yeah. They make these. Ins- yeah, they're not really bothered. The rookery is astonishing. It's right under the lighthouse at Point Reyes and they make these insane noises. What a beautiful spot that is. Isn't it? It's it's one of the best spots in California, I think. It is. And the Strauss family dairy is quite nearby. And the cows... Those Swissies. Yeah. Uh, there was two rival Swiss families that settled the <laughs> northern part of Marin, West Marin. Um, one on the uh, uh, Bodega... No, Tamales Bay side. And then mm-hmm. one on the other, the Point Reyes side. And the Strauss family is still there and has a bitching... Ice creamery, yogurt, butter. Their, their cows have a stunning view. Their cows have the best real estate of any cows in the United States. <laughs> I will put the Strauss family creamery up against any dairy. You have an extraordinary view of the Pacific Ocean from a rolling green hill. And the, the misty uh, view and the, the lush green oh my God. hill. There's a, you can see the lighthouse from there. The bluff. Yeah, the air is slightly salty. Um, the cows seem really happy. Um, it's not a, an eating cow situation for our vegan and vegetarian friends. It's a milking cow situation. Um, if you've ever had Strauss products, which I don't know that they are national, but they're certainly West Coasty, um, they're delicious. Yeah, uh, really lovely yogurt and butter and ice creams in the whole enchilada. Um, yeah, they, you would die to live where these cows live. You can't afford to live where these cows live, <laughs> and it's a cute little. Creamery, it's not that, or dairy, rather. Um, does the cowgirl creamery use Strauss milk? I don't know. I think all the businesses down around there use, you'll always get Strauss milk and Strauss butter and stuff because it's local jam, you know. I just love that 
no one in that part of the county has a building over two stories high, and there's no billboards. Oh, no. And no chain stores. No Burger King. It's a little... Uh, white people paradise. It's, it's, too, it's way too white. There are uh, Latin people there. Really, at this hour? Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, what was the name of that place we went to down to Mollus Bay? Nick's? Uh, yes. And, um, you mean where people, it was, what was it? Two bottles of wine yeah, Wednesday? It was two for Tuesday. On a windy road. Yeah. So you drove there <laughs> and, um, for the price of one bottle of wine, they would give you two bottles of wine. So we had a couple dozen oysters, maybe each. I think we actually had like three dozen oysters and I ordered the crab enchiladas which I thought it came and I was like, oh, this is such a small portion. But I don't know if you've ever eaten a crab enchilada, but it's like eating like solid gold. It's pretty filling. I, for the life of me, I can't remember what you had, if you had a fish or something. And the volume level in this restaurant, because people were guzzling wine. In other words, one, two bottles for the price of one, four bottles for the price of two, six bottles for the price of three. And we were the smallest party in because it was just the two of us. But there are parties of six and eight people that were screaming at each other. And then everyone decamped to the parking lot. Got in a their little ca- scary. Got in their car and jammed on this one-lane road around the Tomales yeah, it Bay. Is, it's very California. Wine, oysters, dairy products. It is a dream come true. And um, Tomales Bay has um, seeded oysters from Japan. And they're just beautiful. Um they cut the whole property back in half. The federal government did for some reason that I can't figure out. Because well, they of, took it back. Yeah, they they garnished it back. The the 1906 earthquake created a situation in Tomales Bay where it had been salt water, and after the quake, it got sealed off, and the bay was well. It split. Right. It, there it was actually, a giant fissure. The, the county split, and the the bay's freshwater, and then. Uh, out to the ocean, which is quite near it, is saltwater. There's also a very large uh, Hindu reserve. Oh, that's right. Uh, A guru came over in the, I want to say, 1890s. Remember that we had an Indian driver in Chicago who made me verify this. Yes. He didn't believe it. And I said, well... Yeah, you had got on the phone until you checked it out. It's a gigantic uh, piece of land that he bought... Uh, in West Marin. Yeah, and it's still there. Wow. What was the... Uh... <coughs> Sorry, excuse me, listeners. I didn't mean to sneeze on you. And I just called you listeners. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the, 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 it's so beautiful up in Marin County. We did a podcast in Mill Valley last year, which is sort of just above San Francisco. And uh, we'll be playing Sonoma, or, or rather San, Ra- San Rafael, quite soon. One of the things I love about Knoll Valley is that it's the dinkiest, uh, cute little town with redwood trees. But it's also where Grace Slick held off the police with a gun. And oh, absolutely. Sammy Hagar lives there. Sammy Hagar lives there and has a Which restaurant. Which just says mellow, right. doesn't it? And hilariously, Sammy Hagar's restaurant in Mill Valley is not a Cabo Wabo upside down shooters in a barber chair place. It's kind of a of fine... Of course not, because he lives there. Right. Nearby. It's fine dining and fine wine. Yeah. We didn't go, but we did look at the we, menu. We just couldn't bring ourselves to. Well, it's hard to go. Like, let's go eat at Hagar's. <laughs> 
Now, if Neil Schoen of Journey had opened a place, maybe we'd have been nipping right in there immediately. <laughs> Steve Perry's Burritos. Um, you make me wee. I want to cry. Uh, yeah. Sammy Hagar is an insupportable rock star from the Bay Area who, um, once upon a time, was in a group called Montrose, which is where I first saw him. Or, or didn't see him, rather, as I skipped out on Montrose. Then um, I saw him solo this will disgust and annoy you, but you have to remember I was a white person from the peninsula, Jennifer. It was a triple bill. It was Sammy Hagar opening Rick Derringer and um, uh, Fog Hat oh at my. the Cow Palace. So a lot of vodka drunk from... Uh, well, I was trying to explain to, uh, to somebody about Bill Graham the other day. Yeah. And how Bill Graham just ran everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a Bill Graham show. Music, right, right of course. Uh, every concert in California... Certainly was, in Northern California. Was one of his productions. Well, he had all the biggest bands. So if you saw The Stones... The or Dead, you, Santana. Yeah, yeah. And he would put together the worst possible bills because he couldn't move past the the early 70s. Yeah, he was... Like that, he, he ended there and then he thought, well, uh, if there's a, a punk band, I'm going to put uh, REO Speedwagon. Well, right, exactly. Out. First of all, I saw... <laughs> The Ready Maids, who were kind of a new wave punkish, Blondie featuring Ario Speedwagon closing. And it's like the fans of Ario Speedwagon and Blondie were not in the same Venn diagram. Uh, yeah. And this is Ario Speedwagon before they were, you know, I don't want to sleep. I just want to keep on loving you. It was way before that. I remember when you and I saw the Beastie Boys. Yes. Bill Graham... Tupelo Chain conv- Sex opened. Oh, God. <laughs> he was convinced that it was going to be a riot, yeah. and he had three ambulances outside. To see the and Beastie Boys. you know boys. what happened? They were, it was so dumb. The, the stage was quite high, and they had a DJ uh, playing vinyl, and people were charging the stage, and the album kept skipping. <laughs> Yes. And you remember Ad Rock goes... That was so stupid. Ad Rock goes, hey, you guys, quit hitting the stage because you're fucking us up. And if you fuck us up, it fucks up the record and then it fucks up the whole concert, okay? And Jennifer and I looked at each other. Mind you, Jennifer was a child at this concert. Um, yeah, we saw the Beastie Boys on their first tour. And yeah. they were just... they All they did was they, spray it was beer. Not, it wasn't good. They sprayed beer on the audience. It was, it was a license to ill. It was their very first album. But, but oh my God, the idea that there was going to be some kind of, you know, conflagration. It's because it was hip-hop and he freaked out. He was sort of like Don Cornelius' attitude toward hip-hop. Like, <laughs> I'm not letting these gangsters into this fucking place. And it's like, dude, you your favorite band was the Grateful Dead who he had an actual speed dealer in the band. Um, the Grateful Dead were... Uh, Heroin addicts. Well, they were uh, uh, friends with the Hells Angels. Yes, yeah, they're, they, they're They roadies. were friends with a biker gang that, that was terrifying. Wasn't Pigpen an actual sort yes. of biker meth dude? Yes, and, yes. Well, and also uh, the first gigs that they did um, down Santa Cruz and whatnot were all attended by bikers. That whole legend of the Grateful Dead is that everyone spiked the punch. They took a lot of drugs, meaning LSD, and then, of course, speed to keep going through the LSD and drink to keep going through well, the... Well, that's the lie about hippies. They were mainly horrible middle-class, upper-middle-class white people who were kind of violent. Except, to much to his credit, a couple people, Jerry. Well, yeah. Jerry well, Garcia, Jerry Garcia son of musicians. Is a, is, uh, he was Hispanic. And named after... Uh, 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 Jerome Kern. Right. His, his parents were sensitive artists. He was a sensitive artist. Carlos Santana, of course... Is a is a 
a maestro of guitar and certainly not a middle-class white guy. Um, that's the strongest no, part. No, I, I just meant the hippies. Oh, I know. The, the fans. The actual hippie culture, yeah. It was uh, a lot of entitled Indulgent. dudes. Well, I mean, you know, also the idea of peace and love and everything. San Francisco bands, even though the whole hippie thing was so huge in San Francisco, San Francisco bands are the least peace and love bands Ooh, in the world. Right. The Grateful Dead uh, hung around with gangsters. The, um, so, bless you. Excuse me. The Jefferson Airplane carried guns. and Yeah, they, they were uh, pretty ferocious. Sorry. Also, also uh, very entitled. I mean, I, I do... Uh, I do like a lot of their stuff, but uh, yeah, kind of problematic. Um, one of my favorite things that Bill Graham did was when Dylan was in a Christian bag for, I don't know, a year, a couple of years. Um, Bill Graham, who was Jewish, would, was wearing an ostentatious cross. But was he not also wearing a Star of David at the same yes, time? but he always wore the Star of David. Yeah. But when Dylan was in town, he would put on a cross. Yeah. He how was many, that guy. How many shows did you see of that concert? Did you usher? I, I saw 21. And that was a slow train coming? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're like, okay, I got it. Did Jerry Wexler produce that album? Gosh, I don't know. Wasn't I think he did. Um, so Dylan wrote it. Wexler produced it. And what was the song? There was no hits on it, really. But I, I remember this one. It went... Um, he had a great band and, and wonderful the backing band, singers. Yeah, yeah. He had a gospel band, mm-hmm, didn't he? Mm-hmm. It might be the devil. It might be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody, was one of them. Slow train coming. It had a brown paper wrapper kind of cover with a weird etching of a, yeah. of a well, train. Well, I mean, at least it didn't have one of his paintings. Oh, like Saved? <laughs> was it Saved? Does that yeah. one have his painting? Oh. Which is the next. is the follow-up oh. to that, right? Well, that was the thing. I never, ever, as, as a... a I was as a kid. I was a Dylan fan, and then after that, I gave it a long pass. And then when you and I saw him in, um, of all places, Anaheim, mm-hmm. I couldn't believe how good he was. I never yeah. thought he'd come back to that to he being good. Um, John Fugelsang, who is a friend of the show and a friend of the uh, podcast, and uh, when we did our book event in New York at the Strand, um, it was Jennifer's idea to have John host uh, the event and um, uh, he's a musicologist uh, and a almost an obsequious fan of music and uh, <laughs> I mentioned to him that show and he was like that was in Anaheim in 2000 and August 15th or like he knew the date of it and I said it was great because the first half was really slow and all folk songs and education and like he, we, he laid the foundation then the second act was different things newer things then they, uh, they got to the encores and they came back and did Leopard Skin Pillbox Hot um, Highway 61 and then closed with Not Fade Away by Buddy yes, Holly yes and it was spectacular he was really lively he was it a was, guitar hero he was, and it was a small venue I played there with the boys last year it was, it, still in the car park of the Angel it Stadium it was intimate and yeah. it, was, it was really exciting to see him be that good going back last year with the guys of Who's Live and see, standing on that stage I went to the back of the room to see how far away it was because I remembered when we saw the show there and it only holds like 1500 people yeah it's, it's really awesome that, but he plays small places. Mm-hmm. We saw him at the Beacon two years place. ago. What does the Beacon hold? He never Three? saw, what is it, the never-ending tour. Yeah. Now, you didn't like him as much at the Beacon. Well, you know, I don't really need to hear him crooning. 
It's, the autumn leaves. <laughs> Mavis Staples opening oh my God. was wonderful. She opened with Slippery People with it. And she's still touring this year. Yeah. And she had a new record. By the way. She's smashing. Yeah. And um, her voice is unstoppable. And she's approximately two feet tall. We've already told our Mavis Staples yes. story. So we won't repeat that one. And then, of course, how to do with Dylan. And every night she said he would come into her dressing room and call her baby girl, was it? Oh, yeah, they still, you know. Oh, they're flirty. Oh, yeah. They're flirty. Yeah, they are. So I think, have I already described the Beacon Show? I think I did. Yeah, you did. Okay, well, I won't go into details again. But the, his white go-go boots, his pom-pom boots really got me. And the fact that Jennifer nailed it when I said the lighting. You couldn't quite make him out on stage. He was sort of in a, a haze well, of light. That's that's for your protection. I think, you know, in the gloom and the gloom, right, you, the gloom, you don't want to, you want to barely detect the mask, the eyeliner, but and just, his newly brown hair. Right. It was, he'd penned it. Yeah. He's now. And he's got, he had a little Chester going. He was kind of rock starring it on the night. He had a shorty jacket and white boots and stripy pants, pants with stripes down the side. Speaks. But as you said, he was any age you wanted him to yes. be. Yes. And he sang songs from every era. Mm -hmm. He did the early 60s. He did mid-70s. He did, um, uh, uh, he quit recording original music about 10 years ago, easily. Maybe more. Fuglesang pointed out to me the last time I saw him that his last three or four albums had all been covers. He hasn't made a, until, the, what was the Christmas album? Like that one, that crazy oh, shit. don't, don't. That crazy don't, shit. Yeah, don't but go there. Randall Crenshaw, who I worked with on um, Nightmare Before Christmas, was on that session for that Christmas record and told me that he was summoned to Santa Monica and Randall's a beautiful voice, big booming. Uh, he plays the mayor when we do Nightmare Before Christmas, right? He does Glenn Shattuck's part because he can do the, you know, uh, uh, what, what's, what is it? Uh, I can't remember his buddy line, but, <laughs> you know, he has the big booming voice, Randall. And a perfect pitch. He's a gorgeous singer. And when we do rehearsal and Ken Page isn't there, Randall sings Oogie Boogie's song and he sings it really well. And he can do jazz, swing, or the whole enchilada. So he said he went down to a studio in Santa Monica, and Dylan had a couple of mics set up and a little recorder. And they were all in a circle, guitar, drums, everybody, and him and a couple singers. That's cool. And they would just do it, and Dylan would go, hey, that sounded good. Let's do it again. And that was it. <laughs> no ceremony to it. And I went, did he have a mixer there? He's like, no. He had a little recorder. And just put this, and he, he recorded it like a 50s record. Do you think he's like Keith Richard and he just puts on the accent and the, yeah. the way he speaks yeah. on certain occasions? I think like Dean Martin or Bing Crosby or anybody. Supposedly, we know from people who've worked with Keith Richard that he puts on the drunk voice. No, he's just, ah, ha, ha, I it. And then people this leave and suddenly it. he's the sober Keith. Right, hello. Yeah. And, and uh, Dylan's from Minnesota. Nobody talks like that. Yeah, and he puts on the Woody Guthrie. When he does the radio show, it's like, wow, this next song is by Tammy Wynette. Well, uh, Tammy Wynette, uh, yeah. a legendary country singer. Uh, this I didn't love Stand his radio by. show, but I loved, I love Iggy Pop's. Iggy Pop's radio show is curated by Iggy Pop. I felt like the Bob one... He tells great stories in between. Right. Bob Dylan didn't tell great stories on yeah. his radio show. And he would do the lyrics to the song. He'd go like, I'm going to play one now by uh, Lead Belly. And then he'd go, good night, Irene. 
Good night, Irene. Good night, Irene. Good night. And you're like, that's not giving me insight yeah. into Lead no. Belly. Where Ziggy Pop will go, well, this next one is by um, David Bowie. And uh, David and I were in Berlin in 1977. And, uh, well, there was a lot of mischievous antics. <laughs> <laughs> this last week, Iggy Pop uh, gave a shout out to our friend John Cooper Clark, who just turned 70. Well, let's get right into that. Yeah, please. Go on. Um, we are uh, so chuffed that uh, Johnny's getting so much attention. Uh, he's touring. Um, he's uh, got a book out coming out. He has a new book out. Uh, um, just smashing. Yeah, he's a. Uh, an amazing character. Now you saw him. He's hilarious. Last year, I saw him last year in Hollywood. Um, it was before they were going to Australia. So of course, uh, Johnny and I, and a couple, uh, his manager and a couple of friends, we stayed up until like two in the morning, and I think they had to get a flight at dawn. Yeah, to Orient. So that's always good planning. Well, Johnny, to Orient, you. He was a, a punk poet from Manchester who worked in from Salford, the equipment room. Excuse me, yeah. at the Polytechnic? Yeah. He worked at the equipment room at the Polytechnic in Salford, where he wore sweaters and this giant hairdo. And but he performed at the Hacienda in Manchester, where uh, Joy Division and all of the great bands from Manchester were uh, coming to, uh, into public eye. And uh, Martin Hannett, the producer, was a friend of his. And produced all his records. And unbelievably, uh, John got a contract with cbs he opened for the clash the clash opened for him as i recall oh, right, at the very right. beginning and yeah, then yeah. he opened for them yeah so i mean he has great stories about everybody and and uh we've spent hours with him you know he's it, a great storyteller he's a wonderful raconteur we made friends with him in uh, the 90s when he was kind of at the ebb uh, his career wasn't as burnished as it might have been at that point. And we were seeing him at small places called uh, Bunjas mm-hmm. and Soho, which isn't there anymore, which is a downstairs shithole that was smoky. And um, Johnny said one of the great... He's a poet. And he wore in those uh, drainpipe black jeans, a uh, super tight jacket. Always we always glamorous. compare boots. Yeah. He, uh, either boots or creepers. Um, and in those days, giant Johnny Thunder's hair. In other words, big uh, Jesus and Mary. Now Jane he's hair. in the Patty Smith. Right now years. he does the, the you're right. He's in the Patty Smith <laughs> uh, parted in the mill years with a little braid. Yeah. In those days, the giant giant hair, always enormous black shades because you can't see a bloody thing. Um, never put his cigarettes in his pocket because it ruins the line of your coat. So he carried a tatty bag with him, sometimes in those days a carrier bag, with his um, fags, his lighter, and his poetry book. Yeah. And he'd take out the poetry book and he'd put it right up to his nose because he couldn't see a bloody thing. And we saw him at Bungie's once and he went, oh, World War II, the Blitz, great days. And we were crying <laughs> laughing at that point. Great and days. we used to see him at this weird speakeasy, the temple. What was the name of that place in Portobello? Tabernacle. The Tabernacle. Yeah, in Notting Hill. And then you went to a speakeasy there where I got stabbed while you were there, didn't you? He told me to go to this place. And so I took some friends and we knocked. You had to knock on the door. This was when Notting Hill was way dodgy. And we're in there and it's great. And then two seconds later, the uh, doorman has been stabbed. And luck would have it, one of the people I was with was wearing white jeans. Yeah. And we look, and his jeans were covered in blood. 
Oh, my God. As I recall, it was uh, some of our friends who were a little on the straighter side as well. Uh, yeah. You had brought some people down that weren't bohemians. Uh, no. Yeah, and I, they I were heard, shocked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, Johnny's a great poet, and uh, his uh, poetry is magnificent. The last time I think I saw him was in Amsterdam, and afterward he told us a couple of great stories. We were drinking in this bar after and getting high and whatnot, and he's a inebriate what can i tell you uh heroin was his tipple back in the day one of his great jokes was i used to smuggle um uh condoms, condoms. into ireland inside bags of heroin and um <laughs> uh, what was his uh, the, and now my version of i can't do his accent he has a manchester accent mancunian um, now my version of the highwayman father i care not for work and yet i cannot afford champagne um so <laughs> we're sitting around drinking after the show and um, and he killed it. It was a packed house in Amsterdam. Really fun night. And uh, he calls me Greg Gua and Jennifer Genifa. And um, <laughs> so we came up to the dressing room and we were hanging out. Then we went to this bar. And he goes, um, I met Chuck Berry once. And he goes, Chuck Berry. He goes, Jerry Lee Lewis, when he came in, he goes, he, he did a TV show with Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee Lewis had a bunch of chicks. And an entourage and was scary, he said. He goes, Chuck Berry came in alone with his wearing his guitar <laughs> and went over to him and went, Hi, it's great to see you. And then he said, I think he thought I was Ron Wood, as people often do. <laughs> well, I remember one time he uh, stayed over at our place in London and the next morning we heard this clattering and you said, will you go up and check? Yeah, I made Jennifer go up, by the way. We were in bed and she goes, what is that noise? And I go, you go up. I'm not going up. Johnny slept on the couch. And I, and I went upstairs and he was doing the dishes. And yeah. I said, what are you doing? And he said, it's in me nature. Yeah. By the way, in his suit with his sleeves rolled up, <laughs> yeah, he was he wearing a waistcoat. He hadn't taken his no, he suit slept, off. No, he slept in his suit on the couch. I don't think he slept. No, he was doing but what he was, was doing. But he was doing the dishes. We often brought him home from gigs and he stayed at the crib with us. And... Um, in Edinburgh and London. He would call me at, you know, randomly and say things like, I've counted the number of times they say message in a bottle or, or sending out he an said SOS. The same that tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree by Don, Tony Orlando and Don, was the same song as <laughs> message in a bottle and that he had counted <laughs> and it was 73 times. And that, I thought, this is the kind of phone call I want. Yeah. This is exactly what I want. You can talk about... Um, 50s movies with John Cooper Clark. Also literature. Yeah. He knows... No, no, he's quite right. Uh, he and I are big fans of Wiesmont. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, he'll do your French uh, serialist from the 19th century. Do, when, do you remember when we made uh, The Amazing Colossal Show, me and Neil Malarkey, and uh, yes. we used... Uh, we were given the entire uh, Samuel Z, or as they say in England, Samuel Z. Arkoff library of horror films, which include... Um, I Was a Teenage Werewolf... Um, I was a teenage Frankenstein, and then there's a vampire one. The name I can't remember. It didn't. It wasn't called I was a teenage Dracula, but it was like that. And that was at a lesbian girls' school. It was really good. <laughs> and we were able. We had the whole thing. It was a lot of Martian movies, a lot of attack movies, a lot of um, rock causes teenagers to go crazy and smoke marijuana and kill people movies. And um, they're really good movies, by the way. They are. They're very <laughs> they're good. Fun. They're all about sixty-five minutes long, and um, there's a lot of bands in them. And and there's one with what's his name, Dick. Uh, he was in a hundred of them. Uh, he was in Little Shop of Horrors too. Um, that actor. And he, there's a rock one with him. Remember, yes. it's Rock All Night. Bacalian? Rock All Night. Not well, Dick Bacalian's the one with the broken nose. Right. Uh, there is a movie called Rock All Night, and we wanted to call the show Rock All Night. 
Instead, we went with The Amazing Colossal Show, which is the name of one of the movies called The Amazing Colossal Man. So I recall that Johnny actually came over the one time it ever showed. It only showed (laughs) once on BBC Two in like 1997. And he happened to come over, if you remember. And he went, this is the best thing I've ever seen. Because all it was was... Me and Neil doing sketches with crappy clips of uh, crappy sketches with clips from these fifties movies. And when he says, "What is it? Michael Landon's a teenage werewolf?" and his dad goes, "Hey, this time if you eat the hamburger, be sure you cook it before you before you eat it." And then Michael Landon goes, "I know what I am. I know what I become." <laughs> He goes to the girls' gym and menaces the girl upside down. She's on the upside down bars. These movies are really good. Um, I'm going to play you a song that was... Yes, um, please. David Chase. Uh, it's the 20th anniversary of The Sopranos, and the first and second season are, of course, a magnificent achievement in television. The other eight seasons are whatever. Anyway, uh, uh, Edie Falco and James Gandolfini and um, uh, Edie, I mean, um, uh, J- Dr. Melfi. Lorraine Bracco. Lorraine Bracco are absolutely superb on the show. Oh, and this, yeah. Oh, and um, uh, Nancy Marchand, who played um, Livia. Uh-huh. Just absolutely, uh, they've been shown again on HBO here in the United States. And um, David Chase used uh, a Johnny Cooper Clark song off uh, that Martin Hamnett produced. It had a super bassy mm-hmm. version of this, but Jennifer and I have been listening to it over and over. And this is one of well, our favorite one, versions. Yeah, it's one of our favorites. Um, he, it's, a, it's a poem about Manchester. It's going to take a couple minutes. Um, it's not that long. Uh, none of his things are. It's brevity. And um, he rhymes. He does not do free verse. And when asked why he didn't do free verse, he said, it gives it a bit of structure. <laughs> um, and this one's called Evidently Chicken Town. Chicken Town is Manchester. Um, and if you can imagine him growing up there, um, born after the war, and he told us that he used to play in buildings that had German bombs that yes. hadn't gone off. Yes. Yes. They were still there. There were still well, in, ruins. In Salford, where Morrissey's from, it's it's a suburb of Manchester that's even rougher than Manchester. Yes, if you remember that one Morrissey video, I believe everyone's wearing a Salford Sal- Athletic Club <laughs> sweatshirt. Quite a joke. Uh, he's from Salford. And um, Manchester's chicken town. Uh, we had a lot of good times in Manchester. Um, Mark Radcliffe and Lard used to do um, their awesome radio show in the 90s there. And we were lucky enough to uh, be a guest on the show a thousand times where we met our Mark Kermode, the film critic from The Guardian. We were just kids then, of course. Uh, and then um, I hosted it when Mark was on vacation sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they let me pick people to come up. And um, I had... When you had Adam West on the show? I had Adam West on the show. <laughs> I had um, um, Will Self on the show. Nice. I had um, Simon Armitage, the poet, on the show. Um, Will Self, um, through his poetry in the air and then danced on it and then picked it up and read it randomly. <laughs> um, uh, Will Self is a, a former heroin addict who was kind of a, how would you describe his writing? Not gonzo, but like mm. sort of, I guess the English thought he was real hard edge. Right, it's a bit dark. A bit dark, let's say that. He wrote a book about walking through LA, which is a really weird part of his yes. career. Um, but anyway, it was an eclectic time, and we were eating in a Mexican restaurant once, and Pantera came in, and we met Dimebag, yes, uh, yes, we who's did. now swirling in the stars. And uh, they were so nice. It, um, Manchester is just a, has been, for a long time, a real music town. Stone Roses. Uh, Happy uh, Mondays. Happy Mondays. Oasis. Everybody. I mean, and, but Oasis is like Johnny Come Lately compared to the... Uh, yeah. I mean, they are 20 years old, but you get the idea. In any case... Um, 
I'm going to spin this for you. And it's not the musical version. It's him reading it, which is as God intended it. As he would say, straight from the heart of Johnny Kubik. Town, things aren't quite so cut and dried. The fucking cops are fucking keen, I fucking keep it fucking clean, the fucking sheets are fucking swanning, fucking draws are fucking line, of fucking fun and fucking games are fucking kids who fucking blames. Nowhere to be fucking found anywhere in chicken town. Fucking train is fucking late, fucking wait, you fucking wait. Fucking lost and fucking found, stuck in fucking chicken town. The fucking scene is fucking sad, fucking news is fucking bad. Fucking weed is fucking served, the fucking speed is fucking served, the fucking jokes are fucking dad. Don't make me fucking laugh, it fucking hurts to look around anywhere in chicken town. Fucking view is fucking vile, fucking miles and fucking miles of fucking babies fucking cry fucking flowers fucking die fucking food is fucking mock the fucking drains are fucking fuck the colour scheme is fucking brown everywhere in chicken sound a fucking trail is fucking late fucking wait you fucking wait fucking lost and fucking found stuck in fucking chicken sound fucking pubs are fucking dull fucking clubs are fucking full of fucking girls with fucking guys with fucking murder in their eyes fucking block gets fucking stabbed waiting for a fucking kebab you fucking stay at fucking home the fucking neighbours fucking moan keep the fucking racket down this is fucking chicken sound a fucking trail is fucking late Fucking wait, you fucking wait. Fucking lost and fucking found. Stuck in fucking chicken cell. Fucking pies are fucking old. The fucking chips are fucking cold. The fucking beer is fucking flat. Fucking flats are fucking rats. Fucking clocks are fucking wrong. The fucking days are fucking long. It fucking gets you fucking down. Evidently, chicken sound. Yeah. Astonishing. Um, I know it's hard to understand some of it. I want to read you a couple of the lines. Um, the fucking scene is fucking sad. The fucking news is fucking bad. The fucking weed is fucking turf. The fucking speed is fucking surf. The fucking folks are fucking daft. Don't make me fucking laugh. Um, the fucking pubs are fucking dull. The fucking clubs are fucking full of fucking girls and fucking guys with fucking murder in their eyes. A fucking bloke is fucking stabbed waiting for a fucking kebab. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just tremendous. Well, he just nails that especially Mancunian point of view that is so dark and finds humor in that. If you wish to listen to more John Cooper Clark, you can, of course, go online where many of his albums are to be found. Also, Iggy Pop does a, a, a once-a-week record show that Jennifer swears by. It is at bbc.co.uk stroke programs, spelled the English way with two M's and an E and an S. Um, Iggy Confidential is what you want to look up. And he played John Cooper Clark to start the show mm-hmm. uh, last week because it's Johnny's birthday. So we wish Johnny a happy birthday. And uh, here, let's just see if there's if that'll play. If it works. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's all that. Yeah. That stuff first. That's the song, though. Oh, it is. This, it is. Is, this is Johnny. Yeah. This is what his record sounded like. Yeah. Mark, Mark so it's cacophonous and, mm-hmm. you know, punky. He doesn't sing. No. Because you got to be in the That's hilarious. You actually got... Timing is the yeah. essence Timing. of comedy. Hi, everybody. I want to tell you about a really great podcast called First Day Back. You're going to want to make room in your podcast app for this one. First Day Back is all about people coming back from the hardest experiences of their lives. Last season was about Lucy and her life after serving a prison sentence for shooting her own husband. That story was really intense. You can go back and listen to the last season to hear how well-researched and how well-made this show is. It's had rave reviews from places like The Guardian. But I want to tell you about their new season. Documentarian Tali Abacasas is telling the story of a comedian who died on stage. I mean, really died. His heart stopped for five minutes. And what happened next? Go find First Day back in your podcast app now. 
and give it a listen. And be sure you subscribe so you won't miss an episode. I'm the smartest man in the world, and I thank you. Okay, we got to start the show. Well, I wanted... Yeah, go on. I wanted to say since uh, uh, we depend on writers and we depend on local journalists to investigate what needs to be investigated, that if you can, uh, subscribe to your local papers. Uh, If there's a decent one near you, if there's one... uh, in another state that appeals to you, just do it. If there's one journalist in that paper that deserves it, please uh, subscribe. It's like uh, ten, twelve dollars a month, or or less, um, because a lot of journalists got cut this week. Um, and so there's uh, ProPublica, there's uh, the Jackson Free Press, uh, Mississippi Center for Investigative. Uh, Journalism reporting, I mean, uh, the Bayou Brief, um, the Miami Herald uh, that was going after the story about Jeffrey Epstein, um, the uh, Press Democrat in Santa Rosa that, that won the Pulitzer for their coverage of the fire. Uh, Washington Post has David Fahrenholt and many other uh, fabulous journalists. Um, the Cincinnati uh, Inquirer, the Des Moines Register, they've all won Pulitzers. And we need we need papers. Well, you've been reading about and listening to how uh, BuzzFeed and the Gannett Corporation have made terrible, terrible cuts this week. And so, the Huffington Post. And HuffPo. And that meant literally dozens and dozens of reporters um, and columnists and sports writers and featurists and investigative journalists were let go and don't have any livelihood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's a terrible state of affairs, and there's the reason. Well, let's not go into the huge. I don't have time to do the whole backstory. Corporate greed. Um, there's no reason that well, papers should be stripped. Uh, paper editions are obviously not a thing anymore. But everyone looks at their phone, and yeah. everyone looks at their computer. Well, one reason is that all the ad revenue goes to Google and Facebook. And that's not how it was. The structure when we were teenagers, when I was a teenager, you were a child. Um, <laughs> was uh, that the ad revenue was what kept the paper going. And um, that's all been completely uh, altered. Also, remember, all the places Jennifer talked... Did you mention the Jackson uh, yeah. paper? Uh, there's a lot of... It's imperative with Sinclair owning a lot of TV stations and with Gannon owning a lot of papers. Well, these are people that broke the story about Roy Moore uh, that helped educate people about elections and who they should vote for. I mean, they're, mm. they're essential. Even the LA times has been rebooted in its yes. glory days in the early eighties or late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, I subscribe to the LA times. Uh, the LA times has been rebooted by a rich guy who's come back in and got a bunch of reporters back. Mm-hmm. And at one point they were a really terrific paper. Now they're a very good paper with their trying as hard as it can. I think um, it's imperative to let your local TV stations know that you want local reporting because things go unreported. Things like malfeasance in your neighborhood, things like doctors pulling nonsense, things like air pollution. Yeah. These local perpetrators can get away with it because there isn't the kind of coverage that there was even 10 years ago, but mm-hmm. much less 20, 25 years ago. Right. You need uh, someone with a gimlet eye who's uh, going to really dig for the truth of the matter. And by the way, reporting is supposed to be that as Jennifer said, a gimlet eye, um, Joseph Pulitzer, who came to this country um, and was not uh, grandfathered in, said a newspaper 
one of Jennifer's favorite papers is called the Anderson Valley Advertiser to go back to mm-hmm. Marin again. But their masthead says uh, on it, a newspaper should have no friends. And uh, the coziness uh, that, uh, say, for instance, Fox News um, enjoys with the white. Well, that's propaganda. Right. But that's like TAS or Isvestia or uh, RT. Mm-hmm. I'm using two archaic terms by saying TAS and Isvestia. <laughs> uh, Russian TV is propaganda for the state. And um, Fox News is propaganda for the state. So they're not selling you any truth. As we have often discussed on the show here, Jennifer and I are not beholding to our advertisers. We often turn down advertisers. Um, and we have no corporate meetings here. At no point do Ryan, Matt, Jennifer, and I ever sit down and discuss <laughs> the means and ways that we are going to enrich ourselves from corporate um, involvement in our show. So therefore, we are actually free to tell you what we want uh, and what we wish and what we believe and what we research. And because Jennifer is one of the great uh, researchers, uh, really? we, we try to uh, keep it real here with the facts. Uh, I, we try to cite sources. Um, and all those papers that she's talking about, it was really imperative that you throw some money their way or subscribe to something if you can. Yes, yes. You know how all the uh, local alternative papers, those were all bought up by syndicates too. Mm-hmm. There was a really vital one in Phoenix, Denver. Uh, Denver had two great papers, uh, the Rocky Mountain News and the Post, and those are decimated. They decimated the Post. No, it's very important. The Post was a great paper. If you If you follow a certain journalist, you know, just... Make sure that you support their work. Let them know you love them. And also, you, um, my darlings, are responsible uh, for reporting. Um, w- Jennifer and I are um, de facto journalists, uh, and I take it uh, uh, res- uh, very seriously, my responsibility. We're broadcasters. Um, I've been a broadcaster for a long time. Um, I had a podcast from 2000-2005 on Audible. I've had a podcast here with all y'all for since 2010. I try to not lie to you. And I try to not, obviously you get my opinion all the fucking time, but um, I try to tell it like it is, uh, as uh, Garland Bunting says in the movie Bull Durham, it's time Bulls fans to tell it like it is. And this is the worst Bulls team I've seen in 25 years. Um, um, the country's overrun by white supremacy and uh, corporate bullshit um, by toxic male privilege and all that. But the real truth is, and the real story is, that that's changing so fast. Mm-hmm. And the reason why all the toxic male privilege gets so much coverage is, this is the last gasp of the dinosaurs as they roam the earth. Now, are they neutered? Are they uh, uh, abandoned yet? No. they still got lots of power and lots of money, and they're going to mm-hmm. hold on to the very last. Mm-hmm. The reason Howard Schultz is even entertaining a run at president oh, God. is that he's a privileged, rich, idiotic white guy who thinks, as Jennifer often says to me, because they struck it lucky once, they think they're smart. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, mm-hmm. uh, Jack Dorsey, uh, 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 Howard Schultz. Um, the list really goes on forever. Jamie Dimon, whoever it is. I hate to quote uh, Orson Welles, but it was probably Joseph Mankiewicz who wrote in Citizen Kane. Um, there's a line where they go to visit Everett Sloan, who was um, Charles Foster Kane's um, right-hand man, and Charles Foster Kane is a terrible tycoon who's supposed to be sort of a combo platter of several... Hearst. Yeah, William Randolph Hearst, who is from San Francisco, okay. and uh, I believe is responsible, often is credited with saying to... Uh, the Spanish-American War was a war that didn't need to happen, much like the Mexican-American War, the Vietnam War, the Second World War, or whatever, um, or the Vietnam War, 
Um, and it was started in false pretenses. Uh, an American ship called the Maine was docked in Havana Harbor. And um, it was blown up somehow or an explosion happened. That was never explained. We blamed the Spanish and the Cuban revolutionaries on it. And William Randolph Hearst said, you give me the, um, what was it? The headline, I'll give you the war. And so we made war. President McKinley made war on the country of Spain. We invaded the mm -hmm. Philippines. Mm -hmm. In case you don't know anything about history, we invaded the Philippines. We yeah, invaded. It's always Cu so fun. We invaded Cuba, and Teddy Roosevelt and his so-called Rough Riders did this ride up San Juan Hill. That never happened. Right. Um, they did not ride on horses up San Juan Hill. They crawled up on their stomachs while a fusillade of gunfire imagined. Um, Admiral Dewey steamed into Manila Harbor, and that's when he said, "You may fire when ready, Gridley." Um, and in the movie Butch Cassidy, because everything comes back to the movie Butch Cassidy, um, <laughs> they're trying to enlist in the Spanish-American War. And Paul Newman says to Robert Redford, remember, the, he, he goes, uh, the madam comes out and goes, I need you guys to come in. I'm losing my piano player. He joined the army in the war. And, and Robert Redford goes, what? Why? And he goes, she goes, the war against the Spanish. 1899. Or 1900. And Robert Redford goes, there's a war against the Spanish. And Paul Newman says... Yeah, remember the main. And Robert <laughs> Redford goes, who could forget it? <laughs> <laughs> so William Randolph Hearst was that type of person. Um, and uh, <clears throat> uh, he was a tycoon of newspapers and uh, owned a million of them. Uh, his headquarters are still, there's still a building in San Francisco that's quite a beautiful building on third, across from the Four yeah, Seasons market. in that liquor store. Yeah, yeah the market. market. Yeah. The Examiner building, mm -hmm. once upon a day. You are responsible for your own journalism. You live in your own town. You can report on things. You have the access of what we have, a small recording device. You may remember the um, West Virginia episode where Jennifer and I interviewed um, Sharon Lewis. Um, you may, uh, and, uh, Ms. Canones, you may remember the episode where we interviewed, um, Shannon, uh, Brewer, Brewer, Shannon, Shannon Brewer, Shannon Brewer. Uh, at, um, the pink house in Mississippi. Um, we did this with a small handheld device that we bought the one that we're talking into you right now. And I know that quality is weird. You can be a reporter you can be a journalist. It only requires going to the place and talking to people and, uh, really, and uh, I'm using the internet. Well, there's also something to be said for uh, supporting uh, journalists who've studied to be journalists. There's no question of that, uh, and and you absolutely should. And if you can if you can afford to buy a subscription to a small news outlet or newspaper, you owe it to yourself. Let's get to the good people in the world. Um, Jose Andres, who has a restaurant right here in Lower California called SLS. Um, World the Kitchen. Hotel. Was that the hotel? Yeah, What's this place it's, called? It's, it's restaurant's called Bazaar. Oh, right. It's called Bazaar. <laughs> and there's a, a kind of a eclectic shopping mall slash art gallery slash stuff that no one needs. Uh, yeah, it's grandiose and odd. But that's the hotel, not his restaurant. Oh, it's not him? Hmm? Well, it's attached to the restaurant, kind of. Like, you can get up from the restaurant and... and... And accidentally buy a gold lamp in the shape of a gun. Right. There's all this weird stuff. Um, the food is um, interesting. It's a combo platter of uh, traditional Spanish tapas, olives, manchego, and um, what's that fabulous... Um, uh, 
Iberico ham. The Iberico ham, that they feed the pigs the certain kind of acorn and whatnot. And then there's this weird um, microgastronomy where there's nitrogen tanks and olives that are blown up and bloated with I weird... I don't need nitrogen in my... I'm just food. saying what's on the menu. I don't need I mean. the excess, yeah, nitrogen. What was it we had last time? The, just like weird sliders or cheese steaks it, that were like it was, reductive? It was Drew's idea to order that. Well, I remember because he forced me to eat mine, but... In any case, he's a genius, um, and he's a humanitarian of the highest caliber. He's yeah. kept his kitchen going after the, he had a kitchen going during the mm-hmm. shutdown, where he was feeding fifteen thousand people a day in Washington, federal workers, and there was queues around the block. He's kept it going subsequent to that because he knows that everyone hasn't got their money yet, mm-hmm. and in Philadelphia as well. And it's so thoughtful because there's like vegan options. You know, it's all healthy food. There's takeaway. They even fed the people who look after the animals at the national zoo what did they give them what was it steak sammies and yeah there's like a beet ro- salad and roasted yeah. beet salad yeah um he it's was, a die take out lunch he was in puerto rico yesterday or the day before with hillary clinton and uh the clinton foundation brought thirty thousand pounds of medical supplies to puerto rico this week now i don't want to make a big value and they had the benefit performance of hamilton with Lynn Manuel Miranda. Yeah. And there's pictures of them doing that. So let's just discuss, ever so briefly, the woman who was robbed of the presidency by yes. cheating, collusion, yes. com, you know, conspiring Russia media, misogyny, backlash, whatnot. Yes, I know. She did not win the Electoral College. That was because of various factors and figures. And now we're finding Russia. out. Well, with Roger Stone and Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort, I think it's a real clear uh, yeah. clear picture emerges of the kind of influence peddling and jiggery pokery that was going on and weaponizing of the internet, a la um, Twitter, uh, Facebook, no, no, no. The Clinton Foundation brought 30,000 pounds of medical supplies there. We know for a fact two weeks ago that Orange 45 tried to stop their flow of food to yes. Puerto Rico during the worst part of the crisis. So this is the kind of juxtaposition. When Jennifer says there's two sides, um, there's the side of right and there's the abyss, that's what we're talking about. It's not so much that I hate everyone who ever was a Republican or any crazy shit like that. It's right now, right here, you've got to choose a side. And one side is trying to make things better by recognizing that there are LGBTQ people, that there are Muslims, that there are black people, that everyone deserves respect, immigrants. Yes, and uh, rights for trans people. Trans people. Yeah. This trans ban. Oh, God. That didn't even, you know, you can go to the ACLU site and read in detail about what's really going on with the trans ban. It's sheer cruelty. And um, it was Ezra Klein, was it, who said, cruelty's the point. Mm -hmm. Part of being an autocrat, Part of being a, a dictator is uh, reinforcing uh, a lot of lies, um, saying the same things over and over again, creating straw men and boogie people, um, enemies that don't exist, um, situations that aren't there. For instance, a caravan of migrants who are intent on disrupting America with drugs and um, violence. That's not on the books. It's not this happening. Is, he's saying this while we're having an epidemic of white men shooting people in public spaces. Which brings me to this point. There's been an epidemic in the last two weeks 
including that terrible, terrible incident in Florida, the terrible incident in Louisiana where the guy wiped out his family. It's, something's going on right now in Houston. Yeah, Houston. Uh, and Jennifer said to me tonight, Does there, is there a day that goes by without a mass shooting? The answer is no. This is due to um, men, toxic male privilege, white toxic male privilege, the NRA, Russia, lots of different things. Russia is the least well, of our worries here. And no gun control laws. What? Our governor has, has just put forward... Uh, this month, the best gun control laws in the country. But, I mean, it's a long overdue, to say the least. Well, the truth is more people, and it was, uh, you can have read uh, several articles this week. All terrorism in the country last year was by right-wing extremists. Yeah, surprise. There wasn't one incident by immigrants or Muslims. No. And that's not because there was a Muslim then, and that's not because there was the, the camps. It's because right-wing white guys commit violence. Every town is an organization <coughs> dedicated to um, common-sense gun laws. Moms demand action. Gifford's Courage, which is run by Gabrielle Giffords and her husband. Mm -hmm. Shannon Watts. <coughs> excuse me. Shannon Watts is someone you might want to follow on the Twitter. And the WAGV, Women Against Guns. Um if you go the deep dive on Twitter and go to any of these places, at Everytown, at Moms Demand Action, at Giffords Grids, at Shannon's Watch, at WAGV, um, Lucy McBath's son was shot um, by a bystander who thought that his music was too loud. And so he remedied that situation rather than talking to him by um, taking his life with a firearm. So um, you will find so many parents, um, Fred Gutenberg on and on, Shannon Watts for that matter, um, parents of people whose children were killed at Newtown, Parkland, uh, you name it. Right. Sandy Baby. Hook. Sandy Hook. Mm -hmm. um, it's just beyond comprehension. So without going into too much graphic detail, there were some terrible murders this week by men against women. Execution style. And the men gave terrible reasons for it. And uh, so it would behoove you to jump on board and um, start to... Let's work toward um, sensible gun control. Jeff Merkley is a senator from Oregon who's uh, astonishing about this. Chris Murphy from Connecticut is also uh, highly committed to gun control. Our own Kamala Harris mm -hmm. uh, is uh, running on a platform I think that's going to You may have noticed that during the midterms. It wasn't about all the things you would think it was about. It wasn't about Russia. It was really a lot about gun control mm -hmm. the last election. And uh, the Democrats know that. Well, it's long overdue. The women of the Democratic Party know this because women are the main victims of this violence. Mm -hmm. um, women are killed all the time. So, moving on. Uh, if we were talking about the World Central Kitchen and uh, Jose Andres, of course you can give to him. Uh, we have a new album out, and it's called um, The Resistance. Yes, I'm a white, privileged, entitled white guy who did an album in San Francisco because um, I'm <laughs> white and privileged. I'm aware of that. Um, what I'm trying to do with my white privilege is throw a bone to people so that they fucking get the picture here. Um, RacistTexas.org is an organization that does nothing but good fighting legal cases and getting people over the mm -hmm. border, reuniting families, and dealing with the real harsh reality of what's going on in these giant migrant they prison camps. They also look after people at the airport. Yes, are, they do. That are stopped. 
they have an army of lawyers. They have an army of people. They try to feed. They do everything. Yes. Um, there's lots of other organizations to start there. Um, why am I telling you this? Because if you buy one of the autographed copies of the album, um, the album's 15 I think we've added $10 to mm-hmm. it. I've signed them all right here at this table that we're sitting at here in the porpoise where the dimly lit room is. There's rats scuttling in the corner and John Hurt's on my dick. <laughs> uh, and uh, Big Brother's watching us. And I signed all the albums here. And uh, uh, one of them I signed the label as well. If I see you, I'm happy to sign an album for you. If you just want to buy a regular album. But if you buy a sign when it costs 25 clams, and all of that 25 clams, in other words, we're trying to make $2,500 to give to you, uh, racistexas.org. Uh, so thank you for your kind attention in that regard. Moving on, Elijah Cummings, in-depth investigation of the White House and the 45 transition team security clearances. That's been a Yay. giant issue this week. Elijah Cummings is... Uh, awesome. It's just ridiculous. He's, he's fierce and he's staunch and he's just not going to take any quarter. Adam Schiff um, is uh, the uh, chair, thank God, of the uh, Intelligence Committee. And he's bringing in Michael Cohen for a private session. Michael Cohen, in case you forgot, is 45's personal lawyer who made payments of cash money to women to quiet them during the election, which is a violation of several different laws and is why he's going to go the fixer to prison. He's going to prison. The fixer. Paul Manafort's going to prison. Mm-hmm. And we, for lying, he's going to probably get another 10 years. Paul Manafort has mishandled. I, I want to ask you this. And now we're into Mueller. She wrote territory here, but <laughs> I want to ask you this, Jennifer. Is it his lawyers that are mishandling this case or is it his fear of who he owes? Is he a Deripaska person? Who is it? Yes. I I think it's that. I think he's, he would rather go to prison for another 10 years than to uh, face what Russia might have in store. He worked for some of the great rats. He he owed them a lot of money. Why did he owe them so much money? Uh, Right? I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. We're talking about scoundrels. Tens of millions of dollars. And so it was Stone's idea, was it, that he worked for free? Stone was the one who floated mm-hmm. that? Was it? Well, that, that, that he come in on the campaign, but that in order I don't, to, I don't think it was Stone's well, idea. Well, somebody's idea. Who works for free for a campaign and was the campaign No, he owed, he owed one of the oligarchs. I know, but you, he came to the campaign and said, I'm Yes, not. but that was the deal, the trade. There is, but nobody, Jennifer, in history, no one's ever worked for free. He wasn't working for free. He was paying off a debt. To gangster masters who would kill him. Yes, yes. So in order to... He came to court the other day with a a walking stick. Before it was a wheelchair. Right. He's a mafia don. Yeah, he's, he's, you know, next it's a, a... An acrobat and, right. a, and a medical a hospital bed. A nurse and an iron lung. Yeah. And, yeah. He's on a gurney. Uh, yeah. No, it's bad. But I think he's um, messed his own case up so hideously that the judge is not They're taking not kindly brightest. to any of this. No, but he 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 was a terrible um, he was a terrible catch from the beginning. But he only made it worse. And then this recent round of the FBI made me lie because I was scared or whatever isn't working and he knows full well what he done did yeah there's been so much obstruction of justice and tampering um this is familiar to us from 
when we were young and during the Nixon years. The thing that Dunn did Nixon in was he had clearly tampered and obstructed justice a thousand different times by telling people to lie, by hard-assing them, by paying them off, by bribing them, by threatening them. And there were tapes. And now we have tapes right? in this instance. Or as Rudolph Giuliani said a week ago, I heard the tapes. What tapes? There are no there, tapes. There's no tapes. No, there were, you know what it was? It was a Coca-Cola ad from the 70s. <laughs> I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. He backtracked so hard. <laughs> um, Cohen knows all about it. Um, I guarantee you Manafort knows everything about it. And not only that, what was the hours that Manafort put in? Wasn't it 60? Like Flynn, it was a Flynnish amount of. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's just cut to Roger Stone ever so quickly. I don't want to oh, spend a lot of time Lord. on it. I do want to say these two things. He's a terrible human being. And we were two years ago invited when we did Politicon to do a panel with him, which Jennifer advised me in no uncertain terms to turn down, which we turned down immediately. I ended up doing a panel with Ann Coulter or the Coltergeist, as she's known to some people on the Internet, the Twitter net. And it was a, an awful experience. Um, and I'll, I'll say this much. Uh, I, I don't agree with anything Ann Coulter does, and she's completely unsupportable as a human being. She was as frightened as I was by the, the, the audience, circumstances. The audience was terrifying, and, yep. and I felt like uh, things could happen. And, and I was sitting with Jeannie Jardine's uh, significant Right, Jeannie other, Jardine was on the panel with us. And we were we were worried about you guys. What Jeannie said? Uh, boing, boing. Uh-huh. Jeannie Jardine, me, and a right-wing host who I can't remember his name. He was kind of a affable Mike there, Pence there type. There wasn't a lot of control of the No, there the was 1,500, 2,000 people in this room, and we were brought out early, and there was a lot of counter-protesting and then screaming, and then a security was gathered, whatnot. Uh, Jeannie's husband and Jennifer were sitting together in the house, and I was on stage next to Anne, and uh, she remonstrated with the stage manager and went, why did you do this to us? Mm-hmm. I don't feel safe. And mm-hmm. I don't like Ann Coulter. I don't think she's a good person. I d- disagree with everything she says, and I will go to my grave fighting her. However, she's 89 pounds, and this was a terrible situation. And and uh, It was scary. Uh, Cormac McCarthy encapsulates it in a sentence that I always remember. The growing sense of ugliness where, like, there's always this terrible undercurrent that something might not well, go right. Uh, the counter protest was was uh, liberals. Yeah, it was that was nothing. But it was it was the people that she has um, baited yeah. who have followed her and she has incited who she was afraid of. She was afraid of her own fans. Uh, to be ab- absolutely they, accurate, they that were is near exactly us, what was going on, and they were wearing a flag. They were shirts. shirts, yeah. No, but I mean, they were wearing the American flag. Right. They were literally wearing the American flag. Well, little and, master of doubt of the scoundrel, yeah. as Thomas Paine said. And uh, they were, uh, many of them were taping the whole thing. They were Oh, I was, it. there was loads of tapes. And it, that was kind of uh, suggestive of that something was about to happen. I, uh, I felt um, the same fright as her. And I understood why she was afraid of her own crowd. It reminded me of certain comedians I've known in the past who were afraid of the thing they created. Mm-hmm. Except with her, it's way more real politic. Because oh, we're talking yeah. about there's no difference between, uh, as Matt Weinhold said, one, one minute everything's cool, the next minute a chair is being thrown. And mm-hmm. when real violence begins, real violence begins, and there's no stopping it. And Politicon isn't as policed as it should be, ought to be. Well, it's, it's who they invite. Well, having... 
Tommy Lauren and Roger Stone and Ben Shapiro and these types is absolutely within their constitutional I felt so rights. I awful and, seeing uh, Roger Stone signing his book at a table next to Malcolm Nance. Who was had secure, had to hire security. Malcolm Nance and Joy... Well, Joy Reid told us that she and Malcolm Nance had had to hire security guards to be there. Because Which of made me sick. White supremacists were um, in their face that much and scaring them that much and threatening them that much. That's why that Disgusting. happened. Also, Liz had a table with Lady Parts Justice. Liz Winstead had a table with Lady Parts Justice. And they were getting hassled by... Um, passers-by you know it's a weird scene baby yeah it was very weird let me put it this way talk about beale street yeah it was real show busy i was gonna go into women here but let's talk about beale street then we'll go back to that and then we'll we'll round this out and then michelle legrand and um sarah nelson whatnot we just saw the uh, barry jenkins movie if beale street could talk um he uh wrote the screenplay based on James Baldwin's book from 1974. It's a beautiful film. It's uh, has so many unbelievably touching scenes. It's very uh, slow moving and the uh, the love story between the two leads mm. it, it has such gravity and and grace and it's so beautiful to see two black actors be able to have that uh, on screen. It's it's unbelievable that it's not up for a best picture. Oh. It's re- it's very sad. It's a very heavy film. When uh, At the end of the film, uh, we saw it yesterday, um, the audience was just silent. I think we're all taking it in. It's a picture you think about a lot after you see it. When you're watching it, I was completely body blow, you know, solar plexus, emotionally stunned in a lot of scenes. Moonlight was such a gorgeous movie, and the Academy seemed to move on that one. Mm-hmm. But I was weirded out that they didn't do this one. And this is James Baldwin. He's a not gay up for best author, director. It's not a movie about gay people or anything like that. It's the movie about. You know, working lower middle class people, black people in New York, who, well, it's and the also, justice system. And right. It's about the fragility of their lives, right, that they can go to the store and then the next moment they can end up in jail. Right, and be incarcerated until the end of time and forced to do terrible things. And it's, uh, but I wasn't quite understanding, other than the age and racism of the academy, how they could recognize Moonlight so. Well, even though the execution of it on the night was <clears throat> dire, uh, with Warren Beatty being the mm-hmm. only one who was like, hey, we're giving the award to the wrong movie. <laughs> the wrong Having movie. the white people have to call yeah. everyone up. Anyway, um, it's clear that Barry Jenkins is a real diamond. Oh, my God. And he's that, such an artist. Yeah, we're looking forward to his next 12 movies, right? I mean, we're looking forward to his... I think that his, this is only his fourth film. Yes. Well, and it... Uh, I'm this is the level two, he's operating yes. at? Every two years, he's going to make a literary gem yeah. that's full of emotion. He already has a, sen- a style and a sense of his exploration of emotion, his reality, and the beauty of black faces that he finds mm-hmm. on camera. The, the cinematography is stunning. 
the paces. Oh, I don't know if stately is the right word. It's more of like this emotional. And he uses that Miles Davis song for... He's quite clever. I was yeah. emotionally manipulated beyond my... Oh, my, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The crowd was... we. It was... There were you could hear yeah it, a yeah it would, you could hear people breathing it was it was yeah it was intense it's like they're crying um, someone asked me a couple months ago in November I won't say who when was the last time we went to the movies and um, obviously Jennifer and I show movies at the Greg Proof Film Club we're hoping to show one in March and it'll probably be a, a groovy thriller we're trying to think of the heat of the night and I was thinking in the heat of the night Ministry of Fear. Lives of Others, and or the Dinero Clan, which is was remade in the states as I can't remember the name of it, Jennifer Jerks or something yeah, like that. Yeah, well, but it's it's a marvelous French film. In any case, um, uh, Jennifer and I do go to the movies. Uh, this will nauseate you beyond all measure, but we write with pens. We tell our time on watches, and mm-hmm. uh, we go to the pictures. We dance together even sometimes. Yes, we uh, do. <laughs> and. Uh, so we went to the pictures uh, to see this, and it's always better, I think. Um, the last year we showed some pictures that I really liked, uh, Hairspray and Priscilla. Um, Gun Crazy was ill-timed, but still worthy. All the President's Men. The Third Man, the, third the last man. one we showed. The Third Man, people were losing their mind. Yeah. To see a picture live, uh, it's like a live performance, if a picture's good. Uh, movies are magic. And I always think of Sweet Smell of Success when just those oily blacks I and grays. You know, like James it's just, Howe. it's so right. James Wong Howe, James Wong Howe, he was amazing cinematographer. Right in the streets, doily. He puts oil on oh, the street. Oh my lord! James yeah, it's great. Yeah, oh my god, Jimmy. Oh my god, we saw Tony Curtis years ago, and um, uh, Tony Curtis was uh, is in. Is great in three movies: The Boston Strangler, Some Like It Hot, and The Sweet Smell of Success. I always thought that he would have been perfect for what makes Sammy run. Yes, with he, Jack and, he and Jack Lemmon could have done that. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, because Some Like It Hot. If Billy Wilder had been um, more of a genius than he was, his next picture would have been What Makes Sammy. He would have bought it from Bud Sheward. It was in a very new book then, about five years old, I think, or maybe a year or two. And um. Yeah, she was. Well, they kind of did this. Sweet Smell is his... Uh, mm-hmm. Well, Sweet Smell, he's a publicist, and he's an anxious, oily, um, a pimpyish boar um, who'll do anything to get um, inches... He's, of, yeah, he's craven, and he's driven, and yeah. he's, he's immoral. He wants inches of ink in the newspaper columns of the uh, powerful columnists, of the, which is the internet of the 50s, what drives the narrative. Boston Strangler. He's right, and Burt Lancaster is dastardly. Right, and some like it hot. Of course, he's the prissy, prissy Josephine, um, who is a, a sleazy woman chasing an asshole when he's a straight guy, and as soon as he adopts the persona of a woman to escape gangsters, he's becomes prim. is Eve Arden and, he, and Jack Lemon. <laughs> and Jack Lemon's a, a, a <laughs> wild, wild girl. He, I'm Daphne. Uh, <laughs> And we saw Tony Curtis interviewed, and uh, he was talking about making Sweet Small of Success. And uh, it was just fantastic, because Tony Curtis is a beautiful person. He's a gorgeous movie star, and of some charisma, let's be honest. I remember he said that he was on the Navy ship, 
and yeah. when he was quite young in World War II. and he saw his reflection yeah. Yeah. in the light fixture on the boat and realized that he was quite handsome yeah. and i thought go oh my god you really are that person yes he saw himself he he was on a ship he said that in person and, by and the way took, in an interview remember yeah, he went yeah, like, i saw myself when i was a sailor because he has like, that cool. his accent's always right a bernard bernie schwartz is it yes that was his real name bernie schwartz tony curtis right i don't know if i should tell the well, I was going to say about uh, Beale Street, there was um, a man in Michigan that was uh, the Innocence Project found him, or his lawyers found the Innocence Project, and he was exonerated, and he'd spent 45 years in prison, mm -hmm. and he was innocent. His name's Richard Phillips, uh, and he painted the whole time he's he's an artist to keep himself together and uh i saw a photo of him uh at a party that they held for him mm -hmm. he, and i love that he's 70 but he dyed his hair black oh yeah because well hey because he went, in, he went in 36 years ago he's he back. was 40 when he went in i mean or 30 whatever 45 years ago well yeah. Why doesn't he deserve no, a lifetime? He deserves it, a life. But how lovely that he's, you know, he's showing his artwork terrible? in Michigan yeah, and he's dyeing his hair and it's, but Beale Street is about a, an artist, someone, you're right, a sculptor who's uh, unfairly incarcerated. By the white justice system. It's a wonderful movie and it's absolutely worth your time. We went to see it at this really weird theater in LA called the Arclight. But the, I love that the guy that introduced it said that it was robbed right. of a best that's picture. That's what I was say. Oh, sorry. No, go on. Well, the, and, the and, guy, he, and he gave a really lovely yeah, introduction. Yeah, he, he said did. that this is just, it's a sensual... Uh, uh, Romantic? Yes, yes. Um, Difficult? The, yeah, oh, very much so. And the performances are, are stellar. It was sensation. Um and uh, absolutely worth your time. Never mind the Oscars. They never get it right. Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, Kamala the Bamala, and Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, <laughs> Juan Castro, and um, who else is running? We're uh, a million other people. Yes. Um, yes, Howard Schultz. Uh, and Marianne Williamson is it today. Oh, God. Um, Kamala, Kamala Harris had a, a rally in Oakland yesterday, and there was how many people there? Over 20,000. I Excitement! You, People I, are excited. I want you to do some research is all I'm saying, all y'all. Uh, I love you, and you know I love you. And um, I like to be guided by what women of color say because they seem to have the biggest bullshit detectors. And um, They if, have to. If that doesn't resonate with you, I don't know how we can further this discussion. To me, it's like a real... Do your research. Well, remember what Thomas Jefferson said. Ow! We <laughs> hold these truths to be self-evident. And one of the truths that I hold to be self-evident is that women of color have to know who their oppressors are and have to know all the facts about what's going down. And so they rarely are sold on things like Bernie or Jill Stein <laughs> or Gary Johnson right. or Orange 45 or anything like that. And are they unerringly accurate? Yeah, in my opinion, yes. They're the ones who gave us any good government that we've had in the last um, 
40, uh, in my lifetime, uh, which is to say London Baines Johnson, Bill Clinton, um, Barack Obama, right? Those presidents mm-hmm. are the ones that made a difference that actually weren't to be not uncharitable, um, complete white supremacist, awful people. They weren't. Right. And an independent protest vote is a vote for the Republicans. A third party, as we were discussing before this show began to be recorded in 1968, um, <laughs> is not a, it's a protest vote. It's a show vote. And it it's, it's means that you're entitled if, because you don't care about the ramifications. If in your neighborhood, the independent party or the green party runs the positions of school board, dog catcher, um, city council, then you can come at me. And tell me I'm wrong and I'm naive and that I'm being a corporate tool and a neoliberal centrist. If they don't, I need you to hear me and understand that the Democratic Party is flawed. The Democratic Party is corporate. The Democratic Party is as bought as anyone else and is inclusive and includes the needs, wants, desires and platforms of trans people, gay people. There's the party that brought us civil rights and welfare. They ran a woman two times. I mean... And they ran a black guy two times. And you'll notice the other party, not as much. So (laughs) I'm not trying to convince you and I'm not trying to sway you. Make up your own mind, you know? Remember the main. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Are you going to talk about Kay Ballard? Right now. No, three things first. Um, My beloved... um, Golden State Warriors um, went and visited Barack Obama the year before they went to a library. They go to lots of cool things. They visit children. The Warriors, the last two times they won championships, last year included, and going this year, they didn't go to the 45 White House. Their manager, their coach, Steve Kerr. The NBA is a much different affair than the National Football League. And the fact that the Warriors were allowed to do this, that they did do it, and that they were really chuffed about it. You can read all about it in the Washington Post and other papers. It's a really lovely article. Um, look, there they are with... And then yeah, they went so and visited cute. Nancy Pelosi afterward. Yeah, they did. Our current And Nancy president. Pelosi told them that she got uh, one of their jerseys. Nancy so Pelosi's cute. from San Francisco. They say she's from Baltimore. She grew up in Baltimore. But she's been in San Francisco forever. I mean, I'm from San Carlos. You're from... Her whole adult life. Right. You're from elsewhere. It's not... San Francisco's a state of mind. It's like being Jewish. It's not... <laughs> you you go there and you join. <laughs> um, Steve Kerr was asked about the meeting. He declined. He was happy. The team went with the former president, Curry, Steph Curry and Green, had a post-game chat with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And as described in the Washington Post, the United States representative from San Francisco. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Um, Last February, the Warriors visited the National Museum of African American History and Culture with a group of local school children in lieu of a White House visit. My team. That's thoughtful. My town, my candidates, my women. Kamala, Nancy, Diane. Right. Um, the Warriors, it's all good. Um, the Washington Post, um, Sarah Nelson was the president of the flight attendants. The flight attendants and the um, air traffic controllers 
made the shutdown stop after 35 days. And now we say $3 billion was lost to the economy forever and ever. That's gone. Um, he wanted $5.7 billion for the wall. The um, shutdown cost somewhere between 6 and 11 I keep reading different things. Yeah, of course, it didn't work. And of course, it cost more than he wanted. And of course, it was a show because as we discussed from the beginning, there were four central reasons why he did it. One, the Democrats won the House back and he knows that the shit hit the fan. Two, um, the investigations accelerating at a, a wild pace, including the FBI. Um, we haven't even talked about this yet. Mm-hmm. The FBI wasn't paid when they got Roger Stone at his home. Three, uh, uh, he knows that the... Uh, I don't know that finishing the term is a real thing, even though the RNC threw down on him and mm-hmm. doubled down this week and said they were going to reelect him. And four, I read a headline today that said, and I'm going to say his name, Trump agrees to Pelosi's date. Now, he's an alpha male predator, um, possibly a lot of other things. Oh, there's my peeps. Carry on. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. Now you just fled the scene. Hi, how are you, darling? Which one? Thank you. Have a great night. That's so cute. Isn't it cute? Yeah. Um, where were we? You were talking about uh, Roger Stone. Oh, no, the Trump uh, accepting the terms of Pelosi. Um, you you haven't seen that headline in a couple of years. Um, um, his base doesn't accept that a woman that's um, older than him, that's more attractive than him, that came in recently. Remember, he tried to characterize her as being difficult to say, and she said, don't characterize my power at this point. Um, she's dog walked him the last couple of weeks. <laughs> And I think it's the story that's... To quote Cardi B. Well, Cardi B is, you know, representing on a lot of levels. Sarah Nelson was the president of the uh, Association of Flight Attendants, and she gave a press conference right before the um, shutdown was rescinded, and it's worth your time to watch that. Um, Nancy Pelosi has taken over... uh, I just want to read you a couple of items from an article by Mike DeBonis in the Washington Post. Trump's capitulation agreeing to reopen the government um, generated rave reviews from Pelosi, from fellow Democrats. More popular with the public as Democrats eye aggressive efforts to counter his agenda through ambitious legislation and tough oversight. Barbara Boxer, who's a friend of the poop cast. Mm-hmm. He's used to hand-to-hand combat. With Nancy, it's hand-to-hand combat with a velvet glove, and he's not used to it. Trump is 72, born to New York privilege. Pelosi, 78. When they met, Trump suggested on December 11th that Nancy's in a situation where it's not easy for her to talk right now. And she said, Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting. (laughs) As recently as Thursday, and that was last week, uh, Republicans indicated they thought they might be able to break Democrats. I don't think so. Um, it stayed together. Um, Pelosi called the wall an immorality. There appears to be little appetite on Capitol Hill for a reprise of the draining shutdown. The plan B has unnerved many Republicans. 
Assistant Speaker Ben Ray Lujan said, I think he's finally met his match. Oh, yeah. Throughout the standoff, Pelosi followed her own advice, don't get in the gutter with Trump, or as she colorfully put it last month, don't engage in a tinkle contest with a skunk. (laughs) The big story this week is that women have countered and neutered um, the White House's position on this terrible, terrible vanity project uh, controlled by the Russians who want to start chaos. Um, People inside uh, the White House are calling it not a a cave-in for Mm -hmm. Miller and um, the Kush. I think it's a decisive point this week. There's a new sheriff and mm-hmm. I think that's beautiful. No, she's, um, she's the fiercest leader of the House, Speaker of the House that we've ever had. The Part of the problem is you're used to in the last few years, Paul Ryan having the oh, wheel. Lord. And he was such a, a gormless, bark, wet, woody piece of nothingness that crushed to every whim of the tyrant of Mango Mussolini that... That's why you don't realize how much power the Speaker of the House has and can be a Tip O'Neill, can be a... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, moving along, who are we going to know? Uh, oh, uh, Kay Ballard, is it? Yeah. Oh, let me talk about a couple of things before we get to Kay Ballard. The Nightmare for Christmas uh, is a thing that uh, I've been uh, privileged enough to do. We did it last um, Halloween at the Hollywood Bowl. Um, we're going to Japan uh, in May, and we're going to play in Tokyo. I'll give you the date and time later. Uh, May 26th and May 25th. I went backwards on that. Wow, you really did give them the date. May 25th and May 26th. We'll be doing um, in Tokyo, uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Then in December, um, we're playing at the um, Royal uh, National... What's it called? Royal... Well, where John used to be the conductor, John Macherry. Is that for sure? Yes. <laughs> Um, and that's uh, December 2nd week. Uh, there'll be gigs in London at the Wembley Arena, Dublin, Yay. and Glasgow. So I hope you join us for those. It's going to be excellent beyond all measure. April 15th, I'll be in Chicago um, for a giant Star Wars convention. It's the first one I've ever done. As you know, your beloved poop dog has toiled in the vineyards of George Lucas and Disney <laughs> for quite some time. And we've made um, uh, The Phantom Menace. Um, the greatest of all the Star Wars movies. I think it's by, acclama- <laughs> by acclamation. A terrible, terrible accident occurred and much of the plot was destroyed. And yet we pushed through. I was phoned <coughs> the um, uh, pod race announcer in that one. And then later, subsequently, Tal Merrick in... Um, I can't remember the name of that one. It was good, though. I was also in Lego. There was a Lego Star Wars 2. And then this year, The Resistance, uh, which is still going on um, Disney Channel. It's just great. And I was Garma and um, Yak Servak. And um, I'm chuffed as the Dickens to um, be in Chicago on April 15th. We're going to sign autographs. We're going to take part in the whole Star Wars universe. And uh, that'll be a fun time. Um, Barbara Proctor was a trailblazing Chicago businesswoman who brought the Beatles music to America literally as a VJ Records executive. She passed away at 85. 
She was best known as the founder in 1970 of the first ad agency owned by an African-American woman. She borrowed $1,000 from a friend in the Count Basie band and rented space above Pizzeria Uno. Her billings grew into the millions. Yeah. She's she's just an amazing person. She was born in North Carolina. Um, she grew up really poor, and she ended up in Chicago owing some money and decided to get a gig and ended up being a reviewer for Downbeat and uh, working for VJ Records, which meant... She would fly to Europe and bring back singles, and she brought back a bunch of, as she said, England's number one vocal group, the Beatles. Wow. So she had uh, singles of Please Please Me and Ask Me Why. Um, so she was really the first. It's, it's so cool. Um, according to Ad Age, uh, a generation later, black women make up fewer than 1% of executives in advertising. And who are the groups that the Beatles covered at the beginning? I don't love. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, wait a minute, Mr. Poseman. Um, when she first got a gig, uh, where is it? She, she was born in North Carolina. Her mother... Uh, was an unmarried teenager. What? And they had a house without electricity or running water. Um, when she first got a gig at an ad agency in 69, before she started her own company, they asked her to do a parody on social justice marches of the what? day to sell hair care products. Wow. One of the staff members assigned to execute it, a black woman named Barbara Gardner Proctor, wasn't amused. Right. It was during the days of the Black Revolution, she recalled, and they wanted me to do a foam-in demonst demonstration in the streets with women running down the streets waving hair spray cans. I said I would never do that. She was fired, which set the stage for a bit of history. It became apparent to me, she said, that if I did not begin to control my own destiny, I was going to have it changed. Yeah. So, you know, what a remarkable woman. I also love... Her name was uh, Pro uh, Gardner Proctor, and she called her uh, company Proctor and Gardner to give the illusion that she was working with Proctor and Gamble. Um, well, but also that she was not just a woman alone. Yeah, like she wanted to make it sound as right. though. But what a so what a badass. fierce story, right? That's amazing, Jennifer. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to bring her up because I just thought it was a, a pretty special story. We may have to get to that one and another. What one? You want to do Michelle Lebron? Yeah, I'm going to have to. 
Michelle Legrand, what can we tell you? 60 years of movie music. He agreed to do an album when he was young for $200 or pounds, was it? And no residuals. Right. He had to sign off on it entirely, and it sold millions. And then the record company <laughs> said, later, of course, after they they uh, garnered all of the the cash for that, asked him, what would you like as a present? What would you uh, want to do? What would you want to record? And he said, I'd like to do an album with Miles Davis and John Coltrane. The first jazz album I made was Miles, and the last jazz album he made was with me. This is from Downbeat. Um, Miles wanted to talk before the session. He said, can you play it for me? So I played the orchestration. He said, fine, okay, good. Be careful with Miles. He's such a character. He arrives at the session 15 minutes late on purpose. He'll come to the door and stand. <laughs> I was 26. That's exactly what happened. His group, John Coltrane, Paul Chambers, and Bill Evans. Amazing. Miles opens the door 15 minutes late. He's still at the door. Then he gets in, opens his case, and starts to play. Miles came to me and said, and this is in brackets, imitating Miles Davis' raspy voice, Michelle, <laughs> like the way I play. I said, Miles, I would never tell you how to play. I'm so happy on my first child's on me. You're a genius. If there's anything, you know, open the sky. Uh, Django. Miles would call me, could call me anytime. Miles calls me. Michelle, you need to bring your fucking ass to Los Angeles. I said, Miles, don't worry. You want me the next day? I'll take the train. On the first day, on the second day we talk, we go swimming, we drank a lot. <laughs> it was Saturday. We're supposed to record the Wednesday. So I said, Miles, we're supposed to compose it. We should start to work. And he said, Work. I don't know who gives a shit about that. You know? I said, if you don't want to work, okay, it's good. Let's enjoy the music. We're going to do it. This isn't about you or your grandma. He said, fuck off. <laughs> who gives a shit about this, man? So I see he's expecting me to do the same. I said, Miles, I have an idea. I'll go to my hotel room. I'll write everything, the complete orchestration. I'll record on Wednesday, all the charts. Come Thursday to the studio and take your trumpet and play. And he said, Michelle, I knew you were a genius. <laughs> I record all day. The next day, Miles comes. I love that man. Michelle Legrand is swirling in the heavens. Well, do you remember when we first met George Shakuras? Oh, yes, please. And he was being interviewed about West Side Story. Yeah. But we had just seen Young Girls of Rochefort, right. which Michelle Legrand... I was there for Nightmare. Remember right, that was right. It was all musicals, and they were interviewing people about musicals. But uh, we had just seen Young Girls of Rochefort. Michelle Legrand, had, it's an amazingly lush, beautiful yeah. soundtrack. Orchestral, jazzy. And, Gene Kelly, whatnot. And I said to George Shakiris, were you wearing dove gray boots? And he turned to me and he said, no, they're, they were off-white. Off-white. <laughs> And then I asked him, was Catherine Deneuve, and uh, I think I... Cold? I, I said, it, was she icy? And he yeah. went, oh, yes. 
And we were we started talking about. Uh, he said that Anya's Barda was filming. Yeah, uh, she was making a documentary of the, of the Jacques Demy's. Well, Anya's father was married to Jacques Demy. Jacques yeah. Demy made The Young Girls of Rochefort. Uh, Michelle Legrand did the score to Young Girls of Rochefort, which is the sequel to, not the sequel, but the subsequent film to Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Um, Jacques Demy is a wonderful director, and Anya Svarda is a wonderful documentarian. Mm-hmm. And who, filmmaker. And filmmaker who uh, covered all this. We were asked to come in because of this crappy show called The Hundred Greatest Musicals or some bullshit that was like on Sky TV or something. And George Shakiris was there. I just Coen- love that George Shakiris, that it, he it, it the had boots. been, well, it had been decades. Oh, 40, 50 years. And it was as though it was yesterday. Jennifer. Yesterday. He was so adorable. But wasn't it kind of magical that we'd just seen Young Girls of Rochefort and, and that, he was there? Yeah, that George Shakiris was so unbelievably awesome. By the way, his waist size, still about, what, 30? There's nothing about George Shakiris that's not amazing. Michelle Legrand uh, can't be lauded enough. He's like Maurice Chariot. He's even swinging her. There's a jazz element to him. And when he got old, I read this article about him the other day, and he said, I knew when I got older I had to do classical. So he did that. There's always an element of classical in all of his music. There's always... He won two Oscars. And this is one of them, Summer 42, which is a really weird picture that's not altogether successful but But his score right it's like um, Dr. Zhivago or all those 70s pictures were yeah Um, we wish you nothing but love every page that turns you be a satchel page every bell that rings for you be a cool papa bell and if you have to buy bonds make sure they're Hall of Fame Barry Bonds (laughs) Michelle Legrand 